Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we are back to chipping away at the mountain, John. It's about time. Uh, by which you mean? Well, we're tackling a brand new saga, starting with ah. this episode. That's right. Uh, this time out, we're going to be telling the saga of Bard, the god of Snjófl. The god of Snjófl? You went with the old uh, old Norse-ish pronunciation there, did you? That's ish, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the closest I'm going to get, anyway. You say Snjófl, and I say Snaffl. You say a Snjófjall, and I say a Snaffl. <laughs> Something like that? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's many different pronunciations, but uh, mm-hmm. you said God, the God of of, of Snowfall. Yes, I did. Well, I thought you did. That's exciting. Which uh, you know, since you've already read the saga. <laughs> it's just a service to the listener. Oh, it's very good to hear. Uh, but what, we're about, uh, what, 27 sagas into this project we started? Yeah, that sounds about right. And this is our first protagonist God. That's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a little complicated. Well, gods often are, especially in this pantheon. No, I mean, I, well, actually, no. Gods are mostly pretty id-based in the major polytheistic <laughs> pantheons, right? I mean, food, yes. sex, and tantrums. They're not super complicated. Yeah, they're they're mostly complicated for the mortals who have to deal with them. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, no, re- read the Iliad and watch Mean Girls and tell me the gods aren't mostly living out an endless junior high school nightmare popularity contest. <laughs> Or I would just watch Terry Jones' Eric the Viking and skip ahead to the scene when Eric confronts the gods in Valhalla. Oh, that's good. Yeah, but but don't skip too fast or you'll miss a lot of good stuff. Like, you wouldn't <laughs> want to miss King Arnulf of High Brazil because he's a very good singer, you know. King High Brazil is sinking! Well, I know. I think you'll find it's all a question of what you want to believe in. And I happen to have more experience in these matters than you do, I think. Oh, rest in peace, Terry Jones. Yeah. Uh, anyway, the, the point was that it's uh, complicated as to whether Bard is a god or not. He's a uh, sort of an elemental spirit, mm-hmm. part demigod, part troll, and part folk myth. Um, kind of like Paul Bunyan. Uh, kind of Paul Bunyan? Not really. I, and I don't know if that really tracks for anyone outside of the U.S. Uh, okay. Uh, well, Paul Bunyan is an American folkloric figure, uh, a giant lumberjack known for his strength, size, and appetite, and his affinity for the wildernesses of the woodlands of North America. Mm-hmm. So Bard is is basically a Paul Bunyan if Paul Bunyan racked up a body count and dominated the Icelandic peninsula uh, and yeah. lurked. Instead of, yeah, instead of gallivanting around the vast forests of the American West. Uh, basically, yeah. <laughs> well, this should be uh, interesting. That's that's more or less what everybody else says about the saga. <laughs> they say it just like that, too, with that little pause in the middle. <laughs> in print. Wow, that's that's quite the trick. Yeah, that's all, it's all done with ellipses. Gotcha. Uh, now, frankly, in some of the scholarship, you'd be lucky to even get the ellipses. Uh, Stefan Einerson's History of Icelandic Literature offers the following evaluation of Barth Saga. It is folkloristic. That's a lengthy quote. Folkloristic. <laughs> that is... <laughs> that's it, right? Both yep. a summary and critical study of the saga summed up in a single word. Impressive. That is the entirety of his evaluation. Uh, I should say that I'm slightly misrepresenting the text here. Uh, Einerson's making the point that Barth Saga is one of a group of post-classical sagas which are clearly influenced by other literary traditions, like the chivalric romances and the legendary sagas. So, honestly, he doesn't actually talk about Barth Saga at all. Well, I mean, folkloristic may not be much, but it gels with what others have said. Mm-hmm. Our old pal Jonas Christensen uh, calls this a story of land spirits and trolls, stitched mm-hmm. together with material from La Namabok and other folktale motifs. 
Right. So that's just another way of calling it folkloristic. Yeah, it's a slightly lengthier though, right? Right. <laughs> and others have mostly discussed this saga as a really just a curiosity or mm-hmm. in one case as a rare example of an author who may have written two sagas. Huh. Yeah, we're going to get to that later. Yeah, much later, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, while we're on the scholar uh, roll call, uh, Philip Pulciano agrees that this saga is deploying a wide range of folklore motifs. I'm seeing a, a pattern uh, here. There's a definite pattern. Uh, but he also thinks we can look for parallels with various other texts, including Beowulf and Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Oh, you do? Very interesting. Yeah. That's some serious company there. A Brit-lit survey kind of company. It is indeed, and we'll uh, we'll have to see whether that argument holds up. Mm. <laughs> uh, uh, one last quote, because I really like this one. Uh, Johanna Katrin Friedrich's daughter, who we interviewed recently, says of Bar the Saga that, quote, it is unusual in its attention to the perspective of people who are a little different and don't succeed that well in settlement-era Iceland. Mm. I like that very much. I do think it's also about the most generous possible reading of this saga you're going to find published anywhere. Right, yeah. And, you know, if anyone hasn't listened to that episode, that interview yet, it's Saga Brief 18. Uh, went up just uh, on the site a couple of months ago, I think. Uh, but Johanna's a friend of the podcast and a font of scholarly knowledge on the saga. So check out that interview where we discuss women in the sagas and Valkyries and the challenges of being a student of saga literature. We are fortunate in our friends. Indeed we are. Now, one thing we do know is that this was a fairly popular saga if we go by the number of surviving copies. Mm. Uh, There are five distinct vellum fragments and over 20 paper copies of Bar's saga that survive to this day. Sure, but um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the surviving material, I think, is all post-medieval. Well, you can say that about most sagas, John. I mean, that's true. Uh, But my point is we really don't know anything about how popular this saga was in the time when it was written. Of course not. No, that's true. Um, I, I think this saga is ultimately an enigma uh, for a few reasons, and mm-hmm. its popularity or lack thereof is just one of them, to be honest. But speaking of post-medieval, there is one thing that people who've never read the saga might know about it. Um, which is? This is a saga that is set on and around Snaffelsjokel, mm-hmm. or Snaffelsjokel, or <laughs> Snaffelsjokel, or Snaffelsjokel, <laughs> however you want to do that. Um, but some English authors call it Mount Sneffels, and that name might be familiar to fans of Journey to the Center of the Earth by Jules mm-hmm. Verne, because it was through Sneffelsjokel that Professor Otto Leidenbrock and Axel and their guide Hans began their adventures. Oh, that's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I read that book when I was a kid, and I haven't thought about it since. I've only I, ever I seen have... multiple movie versions of it, not not read the book. Yeah. I was going to say, I've seen the Doug McClure movie at the Earth's core several times. Exactly. Yeah, that's good, I guess, though. Anyway, uh, Jules Verne's book is built on the idea that the mountain is hollow and the whole Earth is hollow, actually, Mm -hmm. and has giant prehistoric creatures crawling around inside. Now, unfortunately, there aren't going to be any dinosaurs in this saga, but giants in the mountain? That's a pretty accurate summary of this saga. Wow, you really you reached out and you managed to pull it in. I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> no, I'd, I'd say it's an accurate summary, at least of the first half of this saga. Uh-huh. Okay, now let's get back to the question of what sort of a story we're dealing with here. Uh, the theme running through all the synopses I could find is that Barth Saga is essentially what Tolkien would have classed as a fairy story, hmm. a tale about supernatural people and places that exist outside our experience of the world. 
Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we could quibble over whether this technically counts as a fairy story, especially according to Tolkien's broad definition um, in his essay. But basically, yeah, I'll go with you on that. Uh, So then I guess a major question we have to answer at some point is why this is counted among the sagas of Icelanders. Now, that is a valid question. Um, And a question I asked myself as I was reading through it and thinking about how we're going to cover it for this podcast. Uh Um, As we'll see, there's a lot of reasons that this saga doesn't really unfold like a standard Icelandic saga. No, it's just it's it's got different DNA than most of what we read. Quite literally. All the sagas dabble in the magical and the supernatural, but usually just as an embellishment on a story that often reads more or less like it might have happened. Sometimes more. Sometimes much less. Understood. Uh, But there's usually a core of kind of standard story there. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure there's a core of even imagined historicity here at all. Barth Saga is a story of a parallel north, one with giants and trolls everywhere, where humans and trolls are part of a single continuum of personhood, and where a man can become a small god of the land. On the surface, John, this one sounds fantastic. On the surface, yes, it does. I wonder what will happen when we <laughs> dig a little deeper. Uh-huh. But as always, we are going to have to actually start telling the story of this saga before we can really get started on the analysis and evaluation. Oh, since when are you the stickler for procedure? Since you started trying to offer a final rating on this thing before we even start the episode. <laughs> right. Which happens uh, frequently. So- well, so are we ready to join Barth as he uh, bestrides the Icelandic countryside like a colossus? I mean, I am. It's exciting stuff. All right. Uh, then our last bit of business is the official Hrovenkel's measurement for this saga. Mm-hmm. Of course. Let's do it. Uh, okay. The Hrovenkel measurement is, of course, our standard measurement unit of saga length, duly registered with the International Bureau of Weights and Measures. Do, do Really? What? Oh, yes. I don't think, but I, I don't think sending them an email saying it is too real counts as an actual registration. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so how, how long a saga does Barth have in store for us? What are we looking well, at? Well, uh, Barth saga enters the court at a fighting weight of 13,302 words hmm. or 1.46 Ravengels. It's a bit shorter than we've had for a while. And I, yeah. I got to say. Well, actually, no, uh, we did have Alehood only a few sagas ago. I'm still not sure that one counted as a real saga. Your argument isn't with me, sir. It's with the amorphous and ill-defined genre we love. No, no. I'm pretty sure it's with you. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, 1.46 Hrofenkels, I'll be honest with you, this one feels like more than that to me. It, yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it's an uphill climb getting, <laughs> getting, getting through this saga. Yeah. You know, it's, it's one of those sagas I read along with and, and I start to get a sense of the way my students feel when they say, I, I, I had trouble following this one. Um, I think the author shares your concerns and difficulties. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Oh, uh, yeah. one more thing before we get started. Um, If you check out the show notes, you're going to see that we have some dedicated episode art this time around. Oh, Um, yeah. And that's thanks to our new friend, Jacob Faust, who goes by Scarpathen underscore illustrator on Instagram. Uh, Jacob lives in New Mexico and only recently started sharing his work. His lively and engaging style immediately caught my attention, so I reached out and asked him if he'd be willing to step in as a guest illustrator for Barth Saga. And fortunately, John, he agreed. We couldn't be more delighted. Absolutely. And uh, we challenged Jacob to come up with an illustration that captures the essence of Barth Saga. Um, And I think you'll find a lot of great details in this picture that will resonate much louder once you finish listening to the episode. 
And while you're listening, please uh, do visit Jacob's Instagram and look at all the great illustrations that he's done for the sagas and for Norse mythology. You'll see a lot of familiar things in there, um, and they're all good fun. Um, he shares a few each week, so make sure you follow him. Again, you can find him on Instagram at scarpathan underscore illustrator. Excellent. Thanks, Jacob. And uh, now on to our story. Part one. A king named what? <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a king named Dumb. Ooh, is it story time now? Andy, in all the sagas we've covered, we've never done a Once Upon a Time beginning. This saga is our chance. Okay, that's probably true. Um, should we, uh, listeners, everyone gather around, get your milk and cookies? I mean, they can if they Hit want. pause. It's- Go get your milk and cookies. It's going to be all right. All right, you're back. Um, now that you're back, I can tell you, it's not really that kind of story. This is the other kind of fairy story. Uh, so, Once Upon a Time, there was a king named Dumb. His father came from a race of giants, tall and good-looking, but his mother was a troll, and both sides of his lineage were evident in him. So uh, that's a paraphrase of the introduction to the saga, but it's fairly accurate. And I would would note it also works for Ale Saga. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of. Uh, No, we're in in the world of stories right away here, uh, right from the first lines of the saga. Yeah, and the king's name is Dumb. Yeah, and that'll come up in the Judgments episode. Uh, I hope so. I, I, I need, you got to talk about that. Yeah. Uh, for now, what you need to know is that King Dumb is sturdy, handsome, and good-tempered, but also huge, shifty, and vicious when provoked. So a guy you'd rather have on your side. Right, which is exactly what the people of Heluland were thinking when they named him king. Yeah. There's another thing about this dumb guy. Uh, that, that's King Dumb to you. Fine. The other reason they make him king is that Dumb is widely perceived as a great one-man defense against mm-hmm. giants, trolls, and monsters. See, now that is interesting. I thought you'd like that. So this is putting Dumb into a category where demigods and heroes live, right? Mm-hmm. A, a one-man bulwark against the monsters that threaten mankind. It's a clear mythic motif, and and it resonates especially loud because I'm just finishing teaching the prose edda. Um, mm-hmm. and that's exactly the kind of thing I've just been talking about. Yep. Um, but versions of this have shown up in quite a few of the sagas that we've read already, so it's not unusual to see that same kind of motif. Now think about how many times that we've seen a beast or undead being or a gang of trolls that's just massacring everyone in sight mm-hmm. until our hero arrives on the scene. It's classic. Right. I mean, obviously, there's a number of myths about Thor, where he essentially is the thing standing between the gods and the exactly. giants. Uh, but it's not just the myths and sagas. Someone like Beowulf falls into this category as well. Yeah, a, bro. A semi-monstrous man who stands between mankind and the monsters. And the point here is that this role of semi-mythical protector is going to be inherited by Dumb's son. Yes. In fact, apart from the stuff about his parents, the first thing we learn about Dumb is that he abducts a woman named Mjol from her father's house and takes her as his wife. Mm-hmm. And a year later, they have a son. And that son is Barth. Barth Dumson. I know. It's it's an odd name. <laughs> it's a perfect name. And so Barth's mother is this abducted woman, Mjol. But this seems like one of those abductions that are meant to be read as more like an elopement, which is, you know, we run into that quite a lot. Right. Maybe. Probably. Um, Mjol is described as... Nearly the largest of all women who were human. Now, that's a nice compliment. (laughs) 
Right. Uh, it at least at least suggests a physical match for Dumb uh-huh. the Troll Giant. But I don't know if we can say definitively that she was in favor of being taken away from her dad's farm by Dumb. Yeah. But since the saga doesn't mention any consequences for the act, we can at least speculate that it was accepted as falling within social boundaries. Sure, absolutely. Uh, although, I think the definition of acceptable expands slightly when you're dealing with a troll giant king. Exactly, uh, yes. So, anyway, Barth takes after his mother, who is remarkable for her paleness. Hmm. Apparently that pale skin is her most notable feature. And the saga tells us that the whitest of mountain snow is called Mjol because of her. Yeah, essentially her name means white. Uh, other things that are Mjol or milk in Icelandic include flour and milk. And it isn't long after Barth's birth that Dumb runs into a bit of trouble, which happens in the sagas. Mm-hmm. A group of other giant trolls are stirring up trouble against Dumb, and to avoid endangering his son, Dumb is forced to send him away to be fostered in the south, in the court of Dolfri, the giant king of the mountains. Yeah, this is a seriously strange saga. It is a little unusual, yes. But what was the problem? Was it like the troll uprising or the fosterage with the giant king of the mountains? What's your problem here? No, it's, it's all of it together. It's a cumulative effect. Mm-hmm. The, the individual elements here aren't any more outlandish than what we're used to. There's just so many of them. Oh, they um, stack them on real quick. We're, we're yeah, barely they, they, a page or two into this saga. Yes, I mean, we're, we're just getting started. Barth's mother being essentially an embodiment of the natural phenomenon of snow on mountains is odd. Yeah. Uh, but it's not like we've never seen a person whose name is also a place or a thing in the sagas before. And heck, Dofri the Mountain King, I mean, this isn't even the first time we've seen him in the sagas. No, that's true. Uh, that was, uh, which one? It was um, uh, Kjallnesinga Saga, right? Right, absolutely. Well done. Uh, that's the one where Bui Andersson uh, visits Dofri's Undermountain Kingdom, gets that's mistaken right. for a bearded baby by the giants, and fathers a son with the king's daughter. Oh, that was a good one. That was a good one. And in that saga and a few others, including this one, the authors mentioned the legend that Harold Fairhair himself was also a foster son of King Dofri under the mountain. So Barth is in pretty august company here. Yes, but uh, I think what he is here is unoriginal. <laughs> you mentioned the whole Bua and the King's Daughter plotline, and it mm-hmm. turns out that Barth also falls for one of King Dofri's daughters, oh. uh, someone named uh, Flomgerth. Uh, and and when Barth turns 13, they get married. I'm sorry, 13, you said? Well, I did say that. They, <laughs> you know. I, that's That seems literally premature. Well, when you meet the right person, you know, true love and all that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Besides, it's not like Barth and Flaumgerth go off and enjoy wedded bliss right away. Oh, good Lord, I should hope not. No, they stay with Dovri until Barth's 18th birthday, and Barth passes the time learning magical arts and learning how to fight and becoming an expert in genealogy and ancient lore and all kinds of things. Essentially, he's uh, he's learning a particular set of skills. Oh, so Barth this Liam Neeson? If we're going to do voices, it's got to be Liam Neeson now, right? <laughs> I mean, we could give it a shot. You, you know he doesn't play Liam Neeson in the movie, though, right? I mean, it's, there's a character. Uh-huh. Besides, sure. I meant it, although we have to wait a bit to see what his skills are preparing him for. All right. Well, shortly before Barth and Flamgareth leave the Hall of the Mountain King, Barth has a dream. Lucky you, mm. John. We're getting a dream sequence very early. Go on. Get it over with. No, no, I'm just torturing you. He does have a dream, though. Uh, <laughs> but it's not directly connected to the action of the saga until the very end. The upshot is that Barth dreams of a tree with beautiful branches that blossom all over Norway. 
and it means that a fosterling of royal lineage will grow up in Dovri's care, and later, maybe even become king of all Norway. Right, so this is a foreshadowing of Harald Fairhair coming to live with Dovri. Of course, yes. And there's a particularly beautiful branch of the tree representing the eventual Christianization of the North under Harold's successors. But that's a long ways off yet. Well, I, I'm happy to leave it at that as long as it means we don't have to spend any more time on dream interpretation. That's fair. Uh, I mean, but what, what I think is really cool about this sequence here is it's, and especially even just the setting of this, it, is this whole pagan past um, is a fantastic mythologically based kind of mm-hmm. land of the trolls wild world that we're talking about. And slowly but surely we're going to move towards, maybe not in this saga, but it's implied that that's kind of the course of Norwegian history is that we're moving mm-hmm. towards the Christianization. That's got right. a neat, neat little detail there. But I mean, not a detail that's unusual, right? And this is essentially the theme of about three quarters of the dream visions that we get in the sagas. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's the it's the hand of the Christian scribe or the hand of the Christian right. author at, at work. They're saying this might be a pagan story, but don't worry. Everything's going to work out fine. Right. You know what they say about dreams, that when you're asleep, the subconscious can be receptive to things like the pen of the author writing about you. Yes, they can. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, so anyway, um, after a while, Bard turns 18, as 17-year-olds do, and he and Flaungerth head off on their own. Uh, back to Hologoland, yeah? Yes, yes. Back to Hologoland. Back to the north, as they say. Um, they have three daughters, uh, one named Helga, uh, Thordis, and Gudrun. And a little later, Flaungerth dies, and Bard remarries to Herthrud, the daughter of Hrolf the Wealthy. And they have another six daughters, which uh, is a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of daughters. Uh, we can just probably name those when they become important. But for right now, the important daughter is that oldest one, that first one, Helga. Well, hang on a second. Old King Dum hasn't been completely idle while Bard's been away. Um, he's in a power struggle with that community of giant trolls. And Dum is holding his own against them until a leader named Hardwerk uh, organizes all the other trolls to work together. One day, Hardwerk leads a group of 18 trolls to ambush Dum when he's putting ashore in a stone boat. He fights back heroically using his oars as weapons and manages to kill 12 of his attackers, but the last six, still led by Hardwerk, uh, manage to overwhelm and kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I don't want to step on the moment here as it builds, but uh, I want you to go back a second. Did you say that Dum had a stone boat? That is correct. Stone boat. Yeah, see, I feel like that needs a bit of an explanation. Uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely do want to talk about it, but I'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, so with the death of King Dumb, his killer, Hardwerk, claims to rule the North. And no mm-hmm. one dares to dispute that claim at first. At first, yes. But meanwhile, Dumb's wife, Mjol, has a second marriage to Ralfeld the Strong. And they have a son named Thorkel. Are you keeping up right. with this? Do you got your pen and paper out? Remember, I hope pen so. and paper when you listen uh, to the saga thing is very important. <laughs> uh, Ralfeld means red cloak, uh, and he's the son of a giant named Svadi. So Thorkel's about a quarter giant, uh, and he does grow up to be quite big, but unfortunately, he's also got a giant's tendency to cause trouble. For now, though, he's just Barth's young half-brother. And more importantly for Barth, he's an ally. Mm-hmm. The two of them decide to take revenge for the death of Barth's father, and so they attack Hardwerk's hall and burn him to death along with 30 of his giant troll followers. Now, now that's, that's something special. That's an impressive body count to start this saga off. 
It's not bad. Uh, do we offer bonus points for killing giant trolls? Nope. Still impressive, though. Okay. So uh, we have to ignore a couple of things here, including the compressed timeline. Uh, Thorkel <laughs> seems to have been born and raised in record time, for example. Uh, time is relative, Andy. <laughs> time is, yes. But in this case, time is creating relatives. Uh, you're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Get it? All right. It was worth a try. Uh, so now that he's burned a self-proclaimed king to death, Barth settles in the south for a time. But it isn't long before he hears of a rising young king named Harold Tanglelock, who we've already met in Barth's dreams mm -hmm. as Harold Fairhair. And Barth doesn't like the idea of living under a king. That's so right. he and Thorkel make plans to leave Norway entirely. Right, presumably not in his dad's stone boat. Oh, yeah, yeah. So let's explain that stone boat, please. Oh, the stone boat. Okay, uh, so stone boats are a real thing, but not a literal thing. Well, there's a lovely explanation. <laughs> they're associated with trolls, right? That's kind of where we're headed. Um, they're a handful of folktales about trolls and giants sailing boats made of stone. Mm -hmm. um, there's even one Icelandic tale, the giantess in the stone boat, that usually gets translated into English as the witch in the stone boat. So you can find that. That's right. I don't know why you needed me to explain this. You seem to know it all. Uh, well, yeah, this know, is actually a... trying to pause things so that we can sure, deal sure. with it. Sure. Uh, now, this is actually a category in the folkloric motif index, right? the, hmm. the stone boat. Uh, so for starters, it already makes sense to have Dumb, the part giant, part troll, rowing a stone boat. And all of Dumb's story is really about setting up Barth's character as an elemental figure of earth magic, right? uh, a sort of trollish parahumanism, all of that. Sure. So this is one of the trappings of troll folklore. That's what we're getting at. Right. Now, Andy, I spent... Way, way too long reading up on stone boats this week. No, you didn't. You saw that. You, you did the thing. You did the thing where you, you you saw something and then you went down that scholarly rabbit hole. That's right. Uh, you want to share? You feel like well, sharing? Well, I've got, I've come up with two possible explanations for why we get trolls in stone boats. So the okay. first one is going to well, be that. It can't be just because they're trolls and it's just a fantastic no. <laughs> weird thing to put with them. Right. No, I get that. But I mean, where does this idea come from in the first place? Someone's imagination. Mm -hmm. Now, we, we just did an interview with an expert on medieval Scandinavian ships. This seems like the kind of questions we could have asked Dana. No, I, I, Dana, I had if you're listening on your, on your journey, uh, right. driving or sailing somewhere, <laughs> are you in a stone boat? How do stone boats work? How do they float? See, Why do trolls like to sail them? The reason that we didn't ask these questions is that we had so many questions about real ships that we oh, didn't well. want to spend our time on mythical ones. That's probably fair, but still, that's a good question. Uh, so the first possibility is that there is a kind of sledge uh, or sometimes an actual boat built specifically for transporting stone. No, I don't like it. Uh, well, wait, but th this is actually a medieval term. The earliest reference to calling one of these sledges a stone boat is in an English text. Uh, it's in the account rolls of Durham Abbey in the early 14th century. You really did go down the hole, didn't and you? Yes, I did. Um, and <laughs> oh, it's used in casual, in casual sort of description, right? It's used in a way that assumes readers will know what a stone boat is. So you're inferring that it's probably current for a while before. So you're inferring that it's probably current for a while before that. Well, I think that's a safe assumption. Mm. Right? And we know there's a, enough Norse cultural and even linguistic influence around Durham that there may be some bleed back and forth there. It's also just a fairly obvious name for the thing. Uh, the point is that the term stone boat is used casually in Northern Europe in the 14th century. 
And as we said earlier, this saga is also usually dated to the 14th century. Okay, so a stone right. boat. Not right. a boat made of stone, but a, a boat for transporting stone. Right, but the term I don't stone like it. boat. Right, well, that's so that's just the term. We could just leave it there and say that the association of trolls with literal stone boats was just a bit of fanciful storytelling. But I don't think we have to. Because there's another connection here, which is the stone ship funereal custom of Scandinavia. Oh, yes. Yes. Have we, uh, have we ever talked about those? I don't think we have. Well, uh, now's the time. Well, there you go. So stone ships are burial markers or mound markers made up of large stones or even standing menhirs uh, placed in an oblong configuration to mark out the shape of a ship. They can be anywhere from a few meters long to absolutely massive. Um, the one found at Jelling in Denmark is either 170 meters or 354 meters long, depending on whose survey you believe. <laughs> well, uh, that's... And the larger one, if you're an American, the larger one, 354 meters, is slightly over a fifth of a mile long. That's a big ship. A, a ship it's, good enough for a giant. It's a very big ship. Uh, Jelling is exceptional, but there are others dating from about 1000 BC through to the Viking Age that are anywhere from 100 to over 300 feet long, so a little over 100 meters. These are big, and sometimes they're just outlines, but others mm -hmm. are actually filled in with flat stones and even have standing stones as mast. It's really, yeah. really cool. I mean, they're amazing to look at, and they, mm -hmm. they go in and out of fashion over the course of two millennia. Uh, Hilda Ellis Davidson suggested in her awesomely named The Road to Hell <laughs> that they may have been sometimes associated with the inhumation of cremated remains, but that no one explanation was likely to fit all the evidence for why they exist. Yeah, and there are a lot of these stone ships around, right? Oh, there are. Uh, there's something like 170 of them in a single grave field in Sweden. And some of them have all sorts of other associations with them beside being grave markers. Uh, some may have served as rough calendars, right? Not unlike uh, the henges in England. Mm -hmm. uh, and we, Andy, we actually saw a combination of these purposes hinted at once before. Oh, did we now? If you think way back to Frobengil's saga, we told the story of Einar Thurbjarnason. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Einar, who was uh, killed by Hrafenkel for the crime of riding Hrafenkel's favorite horse. I remember him well. Yes. Now, I don't think we mentioned it in the episode because... Well, mostly because we didn't know what we were doing back then and pulled back on the discussion quite a bit. But the author tells us that Einar was buried in a mound on a ledge west of the farm. And from the buildings, this site is used to reckon the time of early evening. Very interesting. It's tenuous, I'm going to admit, but it's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm not making a case for absolute parallelism here. Um, Einar's mound is just an interesting aside. Uh, the, the point is that we have a well-established association of giant kind and troll kind with mountains, mounds, and stone, and we have other ways of connecting mountains with burial mounds in the sagas, right? We know that mountains often open up to admit the ancestors or to, to admit people to their ancestors right. when they die. Then we have these stone ships and the term stone boat potentially in the cultural lexicon and available to be used imaginatively. Mm. You put all that together, and we end up with troll giants whose stone boats are going to evoke stone ship burials. That's interesting. Uh, there, there's another possibility there um, that the stone ship burials exist in the landscape, and then other people, you know, see them and then wonder like who 
who do these gigantic stone boats belong to? And so you get that mm-hmm. association with these gigantic or monstrous sure. creatures um, who maybe use these stone boats to ride through the landscape. Um, it's it's an interesting phenomenon, I think. Uh, so cool. Well, right. thank you for that uh, digging. That's uh, that's good digging. You found some treasures in there. Um, I like it. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, you know, every dog's going to find a bone eventually, Andy. All right. So we have a protagonist here whose father was a stone boat sailing king of the troll lands. And whose mother's mm-hmm. name meant snow on the mountain, or maybe even Snow White. Yeah, no relation. <laughs> no, no. She's not the fairest of them all, I, I, I don't think. Um, but all the folkloric elements are setting Barth up to have an association with trolls, or earth spirits, and mountains. And they're also hinting pretty strongly that we're dealing with a demigod, or at least a superhuman. Yeah, and now that his parents are gone and his revenge is taken care of... It's time for Barth to become his own mountain troll snowman demigod and head off to a new land. Part 2. The Church of Trolls and the Bay of Shit. So, yeah. <laughs> Barth and his little brother Thorkel and their families want to get far away from Harold Fairhair and the newly subjugated Norway. Mm-hmm. And so they hit on the obvious choice of heading to Iceland. How unusual for someone <laughs> Can you imagine? in a saga. Hmm. Partly because Barnes had a dream that he'll end his life there. He'll, he's going to end his life there. You think that would be yeah. a good reason not to go there? Well, you can't outrun fate, Johnny. No, who's outrunning? I'm saying you don't have to actively sail to meet it. <laughs> well, Barnes decided to have a look at this place that he's been dreaming of. And mm-hmm. So he forms a partnership with another man, also named Barth, conveniently, mm-hmm. who is the son of Hoyanger Bjorn. Uh, and I don't know how to say Hoyanger, so you just have to <laughs> deal with it. Uh, each of them outfits a ship and brings more than 30 men with him on the voyage. And Barth, our Barth, also has with him his wife, Herthrud, his nine daughters, and his brother's family, which includes a wife named Egerth and a couple of kids that we'll meet later. Right. Now, Egerth is from an interesting family. Uh, her great-grandfather was on Bowbender, who's, uh, if you aren't familiar, he's a kind of mix between Robin Hood and Gisli Sirson. Uh, and he's the subject of his own legendary saga. Yeah, it's a good saga. Mm-hmm. Worth reading. Um, there's also a handful of other significant figures who come over with Barth. He also brings a famously strong sailor named Thorer Knarrison, a couple of slave women named Nipper and Skin Breeches, a farming couple from Hologaland named Skjold and Groa, and Barth's friend Ingjold Arfarinison, and another couple who are described as troll-tempered. Yeah. And if, That's uh, a lot of names. Yeah, I was going to say, we probably should have warned people not to worry about all those names. <laughs> because many of them are not going to be terribly important. Uh, that hurt. <laughs> uh, so these are troll-tempered people on the ship with him, but yeah. not trolls. Yeah, the bloodlines are getting a little mixed, you know? Yeah, yeah. But we'll see. We'll see about that. Uh, their names are Sval and Thufa. Mm-hmm. And no one really likes them very much. Sure. Barth also has with him a cousin who we'll talk about in a bit. And when they get to Iceland after a rough voyage, they immediately begin claiming various parcels of land for themselves. Yeah, no, rough doesn't begin to cover the voyage. Uh, the saga says they were at sea for 60 days. Yeah, and we can probably ignore that as a literal statement. Two months is a long time to travel from Norway to Iceland. I believe uh, yeah. we just talked to Dana about it and... Uh, if, if all's going well, it should take like three days. Uh, right. If you stop at the Faroe Islands, maybe four or five. But uh, not six. This is a long time. Right. 
Now, 60 is also often used in the sagas as a stand-in for a large number or a long time. Mm, that's uh, true. So, yeah. yeah, a long time is the point. Uh, and when they reach Iceland, they don't all settle together. No, the, the two bards wish each other well and separate. Barth Hoyanger Bjarnason travels south and settles in what becomes the Fljot district. And since he settles at a place called uh, Knupar, he becomes known as Knupabard. Hey, look, everyone. It's Knupabard. Uh, we're excited about Nupabarth. Why? Well, we've met him before. Have he, we? Yeah, he showed up briefly in uh, Njal Saga and in Rekdala Saga. Did he now? And we're excited about this. Why? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Uh, well, he is one of the links to the larger saga corpus. Uh, uh-huh. And he's also not super important in this saga. Uh, well, great. So I thought we should at least acknowledge him as he sails by. Well, I mean, at least one of the things that's happening here is we're seeing how trolls came to Iceland. You know, mm-hmm. that's that's significant. That's something. But they're all on yeah. Barth, our Barth ship, as far as I can tell. But it, it's interesting how the trolls decide to, you know, they, they want to come to Iceland for the same reason that the, the noble chieftains and good families of Norway also sure. want to come to Iceland. They don't well, want I do the think oppression of... I mean, that is something that this saga is doing, right? I mean, you know, trolls and humans are not as far apart as they are or in many sagas. Yeah, yeah, that's their fair. motivations are the same because they're part, again, of the same sort of continuum of identity. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. Well, uh, we do get a fairly extensive list. You said he doesn't, he's not that important. And we do get a fairly extensive list of Nupabar's descendants. But mm-hmm. um, if if you're okay with it, I think we'll pass over those for now. I mean, look, that's probably fine from a narrative point of view. But there are a few nicknames in there that would reward a bit of discussion. Well, I think you can probably do that during the judgments, John. <laughs> I'm not the one who wanted to talk about troll boats for 10 minutes. We need to move forward. All right. I'm just going to say that uh, Gnupabarth has a grandson named Thorer Leatherneck. Well, we'll presumably be hearing about those in the Judgment episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, meanwhile, Barth Dumson makes land at Snaffelsness. And- oh, and uh, uh, yeah, once he lands, uh, the rest of this chapter is going to read like a spec script for a saga soap opera. I mean, don't all sagas kind of read like soap operas, especially male soap operas? Yeah, soap operas with axes. Yeah, I know. Yes, exactly. This chapter is all about a marriage breaking up, an unlikely new marriage, a freed slave who makes good, and a couple that turns on the rest of the company. There's even Mm. a gratuitous bathing scene. Yes. Uh, You know, now that I'm saying it out loud, it's, yeah, it's just a more concentrated version of the usual stuff, honestly. Pretty much, yeah. So once they make land, Barth and company make sacrifices in a cave, which is later named Trollakirkja, the Church of Trolls. And again, look at how look at how this saga, even though we're dealing with the world of trolls, it's paralleling the same kind of story mm-hmm. as uh, a yep. regular saga with human beings. Yep. And Very just cool. like just like a lot of other sagas, this part of the story is mainly a series of onomastics, right? mm-hmm. explanations for place names. Sure, yes. We learned that the bay is called Deep Bay. Uh, the slave woman Nipper is given her freedom and some land that gets the name Nipper's Ness, and so on. Uh, and Barth at one point strips down and takes a bath in a hot spring, which gets named Barth's Pool. Mm-hmm. So the author is, he's getting down to some real specifics here. Right, and there's one place name detail that I want to thank the author for including. It seems that some of the people on Barth's ship had defecated off the side of the ship before coming ashore. Unfortunately, they did this while the tide was freshening, and when they made their way to a small inlet, they found the evidence of their indiscretions. What a beautiful way of putting it. And uh, so this spot is named Dritvik, or uh, the PG (laughs) translation of that would be Turd's Bay. (laughs) 
Turds Bay. Welcome to beautiful Turds Bay. Turds Bay, home of the pelican. <laughs> but for the record, Sarah Anderson's excellent translation is, excuse me, children, shit inlet. Mm-hmm. And that's probably closer to the original's intent. Delightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so once everyone disembarks and wades past the bay's unfortunate floating eponyms, they start seeking out space for themselves on the peninsula. And for some of the newcomers, the strain of making a life in a new and untouched land is a little too much, and problems start almost immediately. Uh, Andy, you mentioned the couple from Hologoland. Yeah, that's uh, Skjold and Groa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, their marriage falls apart over the next few months, and eventually Groa moves out of their house and into a nearby cave, which she excavates and expands into a large cavern home. And she lives there for a while, at least until her husband dies. Nothing suspicious about that, man. I don't know what you're implying. There isn't anything suspicious about it. Keep walking. I didn't see anything. uh, We'll leave Groa in her cave for a moment, because while she's carving out a home for herself, another couple from the ship has embraced nature in a slightly different way. After the first night on shore, the troll-tempered couple that you mentioned, uh, Sval and Thufa, disappear, and they aren't seen again for a long time. Weeks or maybe months. When they are spotted again, the author tells us they had turned into trolls and were living in the mountains. Hmm. So obviously this is a slightly different way of thinking about trolls than we're used to. And it's really interesting. Do you mean because of the transformation? Yeah, yeah. This implication that trollness is something that you can grow, evolve, or even transform into. They had the Mm -hmm. temperament of trolls initially, but then they become trolls through their contact with nature. Yeah. The farther they get from society, the closer they get to the wilderness of the mountains, the the more troll-like they become. And so Sval and Thufa become trolls of the wild, who then begin harassing settlers Mm -hmm. and disrupting their attempts at imposing order on the landscape. And of course, everyone is afraid to fight them because, again, they're trolls. Right. And uh, and that goes on for a while until one night when a whale washes ashore on Barth's land. Here we go. Right. And when Barth goes down to claim and cut up the whale, remember that salvage rights include Mm -hmm. anything that washes up on your stretch of land. Uh, Barth finds Sval already there and busily butchering the carcass. Mm-hmm. Barth attacks Sval, but Sval turns troll. We thought he already was a troll at this point, but now he turns troll and nearly overpowers Barth. But at the end of a long grappling battle, Barth bends Sval backward until his spine breaks, killing him. Mm. Barth buries the body right there on the shore, but leaves the whale carcass. Because he's got a plan. Yeah, he does. Uh, Using all his wits, the next night, he waits by the whale uh, until Sval's wife Thufa appears and then attacks and kills her too. It's not a complicated plan. I'm not saying it's a... No, it's elegant in its simplicity. (laughs) It is, it is. So there's a lot of trappings here. Mm -hmm. You've got a nighttime battle with trolls, a whale meat salvage rites, the idea of turning troll... But there isn't time to catch our breath yet, John, because mm-hmm. Skjold, the husband of Groa, the cavewoman, suddenly dies, apparently of causes unrelated to troll infestations. Skjold, we hardly knew ye. Yes. Uh, but the newly widowed Groa isn't alone for long. Uh, Barth's cousin, who you mentioned earlier, takes a liking to her, and they're soon married. Oh, yes. And this is a man named Thorkel Skinswathed, and he is Barth's second cousin. Right, he comes to us with quite a resume. Does he, though? Oh, yeah. He's already a Saga Thing prize winner. Uh, Thorkel skin swathed, huh? Yep. Way back in Viglin Saga, uh, Thorkel had a brief cameo 
and that was good enough to win him the award for best nickname in that saga. For Skin Swathed? Yeah, it, it wasn't a great saga for nicknames. <laughs> no, was he called Skin Swathed in that one? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. It, he's mentioned there. Uh, but so I would have to say Thorkel has a certain prestige around here. It's not often we get a previous best nickname winner stopping by. Oh, impressive. Uh, and we did say we'd talk more about him when we got to Barth Saga. No way. We anticipated this very moment. Way Absolutely, back then. we did. Past well, Andy and Johnny wrote checks that we have to cash. That is very, very interesting. And the <laughs> fact that you remembered it is even more impressive to me. Um, so, yeah, he's going to be worth a moment's time then, I think. Uh, Thorkel Skin Swathed gets cited sometimes for being a remarkably specific physical description, mm-hmm. even for a saga figure. Yeah, no, I think we can't do any more justice than the author himself does here. So, here goes. He was a tall man, lank. Long-legged, long-armed, and poorly proportioned, with long and skinny (laughs) fingers. His face, narrow and long, with high cheekbones, protruding teeth. Pop-eyed and wide-mouthed, long-necked, bulb-headed, with small shoulders and a thick waist, and long, pointy feet. He was swift-footed and sure-handed in all that he did. A hard worker, brusque, but faithful to those he served. That is quite a figure. Yeah, that's a silhouette you'll spot on the wall. I I don't know if Jacob wants to tackle this. Matt, if you're listening, someone out there, you want to sketch this fool (laughs) up for us? What does he look like? I'm very, very curious. Um, So anyway, it's it's probably safe to assume that there's something slightly trollish about Skin Swathed. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, when we look at his genealogy... Skin Swathed is from Barth's mother's side of the family. Right, the troll side. Small world here, John. Yep. Uh, so he serves a dual role here. He's a, he's a reminder of the monstrous blood in Barth's line, but he also shows us just how elastic and fully realized such a character could be. Mm-hmm. I'm going to want to spend some more time on that idea later, but for now, Skin Swathed and his new bride are just another couple among the settlers trying to survive and thrive in Iceland. Oh, there's so much going on in this first part. It's really exhausting. Mm-hmm. What the hell's even happening? I Let's mean- keep going and find out. <laughs> <laughs> part three, the tale of Helga Bard's daughter. All right. So this next section takes us away from the action of Bard's new life in Iceland. Well, takes us away from is generous, I think. I mean, this this whole saga keeps wandering off from its protagonist. I mean, if Bard even <laughs> is the protagonist, well, I, I, yeah. I nevertheless, uh, so Bard <laughs> and his brother Thorkel settle at neighboring farms, and their kids play together all the time. Mm-hmm. Thorkel has two sons, uh, 12-year-old Solvi and 11-year-old Redcloak, and Barth has his platoon of daughters. How many again? Like nine? Nine, nine daughters? yeah. 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 That's a lot of kids to raise. Well, tragically, that number's about to go down slightly. Hmm. The children play roughly at various games down by the water, and one day, an especially hard-fought rivalry between Red Cloak and Barth's oldest daughter, Helga, turns ugly. They start shoving each other, and Red Cloak pushes Helga onto an ice floe, just as the wind shifts and pushes the floe out to sea. Hmm. And Helga vanishes over the horizon, still clinging to the ice floe. And when that happens... It's hard to tell who's more horrified, Helga or Red Cloak. Oh, I'm going to vote for Helga here. 
<laughs> well, maybe, maybe, but she's not the one who has to face Barth Dumson. Uh, that's, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, because Barth finds out what happened from his other daughters, and he immediately leaves his farm, finds Solvi and Red Cloak, and then drags them up a nearby mountain. He then kills them both mm. by throwing Red Cloak into a deep ravine and tossing Solvi off a cliff. Right. These are his nephews. I just want to be clear about that. They are, yes. And I, I, sh- I shared a picture that, um, uh, that Jacob, uh, Scarpathen illustrator, mm-hmm. uh, had done about this, uh, this very scene. So if you yes. are interested, uh, I shared it on social media last week. I'll, I'll share it again uh, after this episode goes up. In the middle of pitching Red Cloak into a, into a deep ravine. That's right. I have to say, this seems a little hard on Solvi. I mean, he didn't shove Helga on the ice. He's a grieving father, John. Expecting complete rationality out of him, I think that's unrealistic. I mean, yeah, you're right. The last thing they we were want both to be rough. in this saga is unrealistic. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Uh, so, sometime later, Barth's brother Thorkel returns home and learns what's happened. He doesn't waste any time. He races out after his brother and attacks him as soon as he finds him. Yeah. They're both out of control and they're both superhuman. Uh, Barth's a troll giant land spirit. <laughs> <laughs> which sounds funny to say. And uh-huh. Thorkel's a part giant shapeshifter, which, you know, that's serious business. Uh-huh. And when Thorkel catches up to Bar, they tear apart the landscape to get at each other. Right. They're both grieving fathers now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they crash into each other and they fight for a long time. But ultimately, Barth's semi-godly strength is too much for Thorkel. And Barth throws him to the ground and breaks his leg. But he doesn't kill him. No. He just... Breaks his legs and then stomps off and leaves Thorkel, who eventually manages to limp home. Mm-hmm. Now, Thorkel spends a winter with his leg bound while it heals and gains the nickname Thorkel Bound Leg. And once he's healed, Thorkel moves to the southern part of Iceland and he gains a reputation as a terrifying shapeshifter. And he and his wife have three more children two girls named Thorny and Dagrun, and a boy who's later known as Bork Bluetoothbeard. Nicknames! Yep. That's why I mentioned him. Thank you. Uh, so Thorkel's out of this saga for a bit, but we're not done with him yet. Okay, so while Thorkel makes a new life for himself in the south, Barth's also decided to leave. Mm-hmm. He gives his farms to his friends, uh, Sigmund of Lagerbrekka, uh, Thorkel Skinswald, and Thorir Knarsson. And these are all people who sailed to Iceland with him, so the, right. that list of names wasn't totally pointless. Right. Uh, but so he's just spreading his land holdings around to the people who are loyal to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one day he vanishes. Barth and all his belongings just disappear. Yeah. People still occasionally see him walking around in the wastes, leaning on a cleft staff, but he rarely speaks with anyone. And the saga tells us, It was thought that he vanished into the glaciers and lived there in a huge cavern. And he was more like a troll in size and strength than like a man. And now he was called Barth the Snofelsas, Barth the god of Snowfell. And people practically worshipped him and began to call on him in their times of need. Call on him? Mm-hmm. They're, they're praying to him. Yeah, they are. Uh, so we're now at that point in the saga. Mm-hmm. But we can get back to that in a little bit. We need to go back a bit. Rewind oh, the man. action for a moment. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a sound effect for that, so we're just going to use that. So you're just going to – you just did that sound effect for us. Yes. You felt felt the Foley work needed to be on point. Did you not hear it? I went – I did. That's the sound of the tape rewinding. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. 
Now, Barth unbreaks his brother's leg. He stomps around backward. His nephews come flying up out of the ravines into his hands. Yes, uh, and you've already cued our goofy tape-rewinding sound effect. I, I which, by the way, such a sign of our age that oh, yeah. uh, we, <laughs> our idea of turning things in reverse is a tape-rewinding sound. Yes, yes. <laughs> so all of that. Now, freeze frame. At the moment when all the other kids are standing on shore watching in horror as Helga Barth's daughter floats away helplessly on that ice floe. Yes. Her sisters are in mid-scream. Solvi is shouting at his brother. Red Cloak is looking sick with the terror of what's happened. Or what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. But yes, I've got it. Uh, Okay, now, reverse the point of view. Okay. We're not on shore with the horrified children. We're now seeing it from Helga's view. Mm. This is so literary now. The screams of her sisters are growing fainter across the water as her view of the shore sinks into the distance. Beautiful. And finally, she can't hear them at all. And then she can't see them. And then it's quiet. And she's alone, out in the ocean, surrounded by waves and sky. I wish you could have written the saga. That was so much better than what's actually there. <laughs> it's, it's a terrible situation. It is. Helga's, uh, she's a strong and capable teenager, but no one can be prepared for something like this. Yep. Especially not after a few hours when it becomes clear that there isn't a rescue ship coming to find her and she's farther and farther from shore. Yeah. It's it's one of those things. Nobody seems to think of sending a ship out to try to rescue her. <laughs> well, I mean, how are you going to uh, find her? Right. Fair enough. Uh, but then there's the freezing night that comes. Mm-hmm. And eventually the next day dawns. And there's nothing in sight. There's no land anywhere. The ocean currents have got her now. It's it's pretty damn scary is what it is. Yeah. Helga ends up floating for days. Nearly a week passes before she sights land again. And she's able to make her way across floating ice to shore. And she's come ashore in Greenland, mm-hmm. where she eventually finds a small group of buildings. Right, And this, amazingly enough, is Eric the Red's Greenland settlement. Yes. Now, Eric's only been here for a year at this point, which is helpful for us as far as dating the action of our story. But it also means that Helga's essentially trapped here. Mm -hmm. There isn't a lot of traffic going back and forth, especially at the onset of winter. So she spends the winter with Eric, and that's where she meets a man named Skeggy, Skinbjorn's son. Right. Now, this is a difficult piece of the story. What happens to Helga from this point forward can be read in different ways. There's definitely going to be trauma in her life, no matter what we do. Yeah. Well, we've just seen some of the trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But the next step is that Skeggy takes Helga into his house, and they share a bed. That winter, they also fight a family of three trolls, and Helga, who grows up to have strength equal to most men's, joins the battle. She's nearly killed in the fighting, but she and Skeggy manage to kill these trolls. Yeah, nearly killed in a fight with three trolls? That's a significant item on Helga's resume. It's impressive, yes, and it would be easy to get killed in a fight like that. So, yeah, no, good stuff. Exactly. It, it's the nearly that's impressive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the following summer, Helga and Skeggy sailed to Norway and spend a couple of years there before eventually moving to Iceland, where Skeggy has a farm. They apparently continue to have their sexual relationship, but no children. Right. So there's a number of issues here, uh, not least of which is the depiction of a young woman who becomes the mistress of a man who... Maybe her rescuer or maybe her captor. Yeah. Uh, Johanna Friedrich's daughter says that Helga's time in Greenland ruins her life. 
and that it's the catalyst for a series of tragic events. Yeah. Uh, We should also be clear about what's happening and not happening here from a cultural perspective. Uh, Helga's somewhere in her teens, uh, from what the narrative seems to be telling us anyway. And culturally, I I guess she is of an age where marriage is allowed. Oh, oh, okay. I just want to be clear that while this may or may not be sexual servitude that Helga falls into, depending on your reading, um, it wouldn't be culturally understood as abuse of a minor here. Yeah, it's it's probably best to explain that. Good. Um, and it's a big difference from the way that our society works. Absolutely. Uh, now, contextually, we can be sure that Skeggy's treatment of her is pretty awful regardless. Yeah. Uh, obviously, she doesn't have a lot of opportunity to consent to the relationship, which might not register as problematic in the text, but by modern standards would be unconscionable. By modern standards, we have to categorize this as sexual abuse. And that's something that uh, Johanna Friedrich's daughter is really drawing our attention to in the interview. Right. And Skeggy honestly doesn't even really pretend to care about Helga, or at least not to feel any commitment to her. Mm -hmm. Uh, At at one point in their journeys together, he gets married to someone else, a woman named Halbra Grimm's daughter. But he keeps Helga with him anyway. Yeah, and we've seen extramarital affairs and even concubines before in the sagas, and they don't usually look like this. Whatever mm-hmm. this relationship is, it clearly, I, I don't feel comfortable saying that it's Helga's decision. Right. So Helga ultimately ends up spending two or three years with Skeggy, and they do end up settling on Skeggy's farm in Iceland. And it's not long before Barth, who's now living in isolation somewhere up in the mountains, learns that Helga is alive and being kept mm-hmm. by Skeggy. And that's when he decides to travel to Skeggy's farm and take her away. Right. Now, legally, he can do this, even though we're told that Helga doesn't actually want to go. Uh, but since she's not married to Skeggy, her father still has a claim on her. It's such an interesting situation that we find ourselves mm-hmm. in here, right? And he's really got a case if she's being held against her will. Right. But that's tricky, right? We're actually told that Helga pines for Skeggy after this. But yeah. we have to put that into a cultural context. Was Helga happy with Skeggy? We don't know. I mean, she does say later that she loves him passionately, but there are some problems with that. Yeah, we know she wanted to stay with him, but there's a lot of cultural pressure involved there and also a, a, right. a kind of a long history that they built up together. Right. Now, Johanna, remember, talked about Helga's former status as Skeggy's kept woman and how that might make her less desirable as a marriage match or cause her to suffer social disgrace. Mm -hmm. So for Helga, life at Skeggy's farm, whatever it may have been, has to be weighed against her status now. And we should also consider the possibility that there's been some grooming that might go on in a situation like this. Absolutely, yes. Uh, We also have to consider or acknowledge that Helga might just have uh, what we would describe as an unhealthy and unequal relationship with Skeggy. Right. Now, and problematic as that might be for us, it's a reality for some people. It is. So, ultimately, Helga has strong feelings for Skeggy, though why she has them and whether they're based in love or fear, none of that is especially clear. Yeah. That said, you know, I don't I don't think fear works for me because given mm-hmm. Helga's strength of body and mind that has clearly been established, it seems unlikely that she would or even could be coerced into sexual servitude or any unequal relationship. Which is probably fair. Yeah. What Helga wants, Helga gets. Um, but what's much less ambiguous is her feelings about her father. Mm-hmm. Because she's not excited about being brought back to his cave. <laughs> yeah. Not excited about being brought back to her dad's cave is probably the least surprising sentence either of us has ever come up with on this podcast. 
<laughs> She's definitely not impressed with his change of address. Or with him, really. Uh, she mm-hmm. could, as it says, not abide her father. Mm. So she she pines after Skeggy, loves Skeggy, but can't abide her father. Mm. And one day, she even speaks a verse about it. Soon I will seek to leave. My sorrow does not fade for the wasted of wealth. I must wither away, for with passion hot and deep, I loved the heap of riches. So my sorrow I cannot hide. I sit alone. I tell my tragedy. Right, so there's that statement of love. And in fact, she does disappear shortly after this. But interestingly, she does not return to Skeggy here. No, she decides she wants to be alone. And so she travels from place to place, usually keeping away from settlements. Like father, like daughter. Yeah, like her father, she becomes more troll-like and turns to cave dwelling, although she also works as a servant or farmhand in farms around Iceland. She spends one winter as a servant in the household of Thorod of Olfus and his son Skapti. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's Skapti, the lore speaker to you. And his notorious son, Skapti, the law speaker. Um, No, that's not mentioned in the story, but yes, it is Skapti, the law speaker. Um, And Helga spends her nights at the farm playing a harp, since she doesn't sleep much. And there's a Norwegian named Hraven, who's also staying at the farm. And Hraven becomes more and more interested in this mysterious, large-boned harpist. Mm -hmm. And one night, he creeps into the space where she's sitting up in bed. And he finds her beautiful and attempts to even force himself on her. Helga, of course, fights back, and we're suddenly reminded of that whole successfully not killed by trolls thing. (laughs) Because by the time she's finished with old Hraven, well, his right arm and left leg are both broken, and he considers himself lucky that that's all he Mm -hmm. got. Right, no, this, this section really does seem to shine a light on the consequences of Helga's various traumas, Yeah. while also showing us, as you said earlier... That a woman of her strength and character, right, it would be very difficult to coerce her into anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the the nearly fatal accident on the ice floe that severed her ties to home, the the ambiguous and overt sexual assaults, even her near death at the hands of the trolls, all take their toll. And Hraven's attack seems to be the final straw. After this, Helga disappears almost completely for a long time, traveling alone under assumed names. And apart from occasional visits to her father... She has no contact with the human world. Yeah, and for a while, that's where the saga leaves her story. Um, Barth, on the other hand, remains active as a semi-mythical protector of those who call on him. You know, it sounds like a superhero when you say it like that. Barthman to the rescue! <laughs> hey, John, you know, uh, before we jump yep. to the next section, I, yep. I think that, that little piece uh, of where she's in bed is so interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Not because of the assault that happens there, but because it describes her as sitting up in bed. And right. until I had visited Eric's father in, um, in Iceland, I wasn't aware that in Icelandic um, houses that people would sit up when sleeping. Right. They did sometimes. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. depends on the situation. But yeah, the, very the often beds they are. Would. The beds are too short in order to get as many people as you can in there. Like we take it for granted right. that people slept uh, sleep laying down, but right. Uh, well, not especially the case. remember that she's a very low status woman in that household, exactly. she's a servant woman. So she would be sleeping in a sort of corner, 
not given a bed of her own. Well, she might have a bed, but it might be a tighter bed, um, and so right. there'd be sitting up. But again, if you if you go visit Eric's father, um, one of the things mm-hmm. that they'll tell you is that um, everyone who slept mm-hmm. in that house uh, was would sleep sitting up um, because they were packing so many people into such small spaces. Right. Um, they kind of you know needed to do it that way. Um, I, I found that really fascinating. That's actually what triggered my my interest in first sleeping customs and then stories mm-hmm. of night in uh, in the sagas. So cool yeah. stuff. Excellent. But, uh, Neither here nor there. Let's move on. (laughs) Moving on. Part four. The Guardian of Snuffles So at this point, our story turns into a series of vignettes. It hasn't been a series of vignettes so far. I know, but it's now it's now it's, I think, consciously turning into a series of short uh, interludes. Oh, Each of which shows Barth as a kind of intercessory figure who helps those who call on him in need. You uh, you made it sound like a superhero a minute ago, and I think that's probably valid. I think we can look at this and think... Wow, wait, what? What? Probably valid? Probably? Well, I can't have you getting a swelled head. It's uh, valid. The, the point I was going to make is that I'm thinking in terms of my dissertation research. In the mm. European Christian Middle Ages... Figures who are prayed to by those in need are usually saints. Okay, yes. Very interesting. I I was kind of hoping you would bring this up, but Mm -hmm. how far do you want to push the superhero saint connection? Well, I honestly think I could push it pretty far. Uh, I I won't because I I don't want to deal with the emails that would result. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The point is that Barth now moves into a different register than we've been seeing. I agree. The the next few chapters of the saga present the world through other eyes, people who have various difficulties and seek Barth's help. Yes. As we said earlier, the people around Snufflesness, uh, they begin to treat Barth as a kind of a local divinity, although I like the idea of thinking of him as a saint rather than mm-hmm. a divinity. But he becomes a figure that they can pray to or call on in desperate moments. Right. And of course, the, that idea of a series of short interludes or vignettes, that's very much in keeping with how saints' lives are constructed, mm-hmm. right? That you, the idea is to provide a preponderance of evidence for uh, the saint responding to those who call on it. Exactly. Uh, and so this part of the saga is going to establish Barth's new status through a series of short anecdotes that may or may not be consciously imitative of a saint's life. Mm-hmm. Andy. Yes, John. Are you ready for a montage? I'm a I'm a child of the '80s movies, and I'm always ready for a montage. Excellent. Uh, we are going to have to lightning around this, or we'll never get through it all. Oh, we have. Uh, we really shouldn't say lightning round because every time we say that, we end up taking a really <laughs> long time to do anything. Uh, this is going to be a quick slow round. lightning. Yes. Uh, are you starting or am I? I'll go first. Uh, so oh. we'll start at Barth's old farm at Lagerbrecke, which, as we said, he gave to a married couple named Sigmund and Hildegund. Now, a couple of years later, Sigmund dies and his son, Einar Sigmundersen, takes over the farm. And Hildegund, uh, Einar's mother, lives there with him. But dear old mom gets into some local trouble. It seems that Hildegund is an accomplished sorceress, and although we don't get the details, something that she did angers a local man named Einar of Lawn. And he accuses oh, yeah, her. Now of, I'm I'm just keeping score here. We uh, got we got multiple Einars, right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, I'll I'll call the second one Lawn to keep it simple. 
Uh, How about, can you call him Lonnie? Lonnie? Sure. Yeah, Lonnie. Lonnie boy. Uh, now, right, Lonnie boy cool. charges Hildegund with sorcery when her son, Einar, isn't home. And then he rides off with a company of men. When Einar gets home and hears about this, he and his servant, Hreather, take off after them. And he catches up with them just as his horse collapses from exhaustion. And there's a great detail here about the horse collapsing right by the rocks where Barth killed the troll woman, Thufa. Hmm, and yeah. this author is really interested in establishing this local geography. It's very important to him. He's a little obsessed. Uh, so once they catch up, uh, Einar and Hreather kill seven of, Lon- of Lonnie Boy's men before Einar squares off against Lonnie. And Hreather runs off to chase down Lonnie's two servants. Aren't you glad you asked me to call him Lonnie now? You mean you keep saying Lonnie a lot. It's getting Lonnie boy, the pipes, the pipes. Uh, Now, Einar and Lonnie fight for a long time. And finally, Einar thinks of calling on Barth for help. And soon after he does that, Lonnie's belt breaks open and his pants fall down. Yeah. I was wondering why you're telling this story, but now it makes sense. There you go. (laughs) And uh, as Lonnie scrabbles to hold up his breeches... Einar strikes a fatal blow. Killed by a lack of elastic waistband. Yeah, I'm a suspenders man myself. Uh, no, no, you aren't. <laughs> Let me rephrase that. I'm a suspenders man when I'm fighting a guy whose guardian angel likes to pull people's pants down in mid-fight. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, right off the bat, we're getting magical or supernatural abilities attributed to Barth. Yeah, right. Uh, so Barth was already a borderline case, right, with his troll and giant bloodlines. Yeah. And once he retreats into the mountains and becomes a land spirit, he's fully in the realm of the otherworldly. And apparently as a gesture of goodwill for the favor he's been done, Einar frees Hrather and gives him a generous piece of farmland that once belonged to Barth. How generous. We're really right up against the idea of a saintly intercession here. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in the connection of the saint to the land that the person lives on, right? There's that's very much a case that you see in a lot of saga, a lot of uh, saints' lives as well. Yeah, Einar uh, here is an exemplar of a supplicant who whose answered prayers form a kind of transaction right? with a repayment that's due in goods or services or faithful veneration. Absolutely. Um, good, good. Okay, so that's the first one. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a bit and mm-hmm. take us to the story of Heta, the troll woman. Oh, good. Heta's fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's another in that series of trolls in this saga who who seem to live on the periphery of human civilization. As trolls do. But Heta's not just a troll, though. She's a shape-shifting troll. Ooh, best kind. And one day, presumably in an animal form, she attacks and kills most of the livestock of a farmer who lives near her mountain lair. This farmer is Ingjald of Hull, and he decides that it's time someone put a stop to Heta's evil ways. Mm-hmm. And so he grabs his weapons and chases her into the mountains, but she's too fast for him. And as she leaves him behind, she calls out, Now I repay you for the damage I caused! <laughs> I know a fishing bank where there's never any lack of fish. And you may even go alone, as you are accustomed to do. And then she shouts out instructions. Right. Now, we're told that Ingjald's an excellent fisherman, known for his daring. So, this is just the right bait to draw Ingjald off? Hmm. Bait? Bait, just- Andy. Yes, I'm not taking the bait, although I really want to. <laughs> I'm looking at it and I'm, I'm thinking about, but no. Mm-hmm. Amazingly, Ingjold isn't suspicious at all about this offer. 
And so he gets into his fishing vessel and puts out to sea. Yeah, now this is the moment when one begins to suspect that Ingeald is suffering from a a potentially fatal case of plot contrivance. Or he's just not the uh, sharpest hook in the tackle box. Hmm? <laughs> hmm? And you thought I had weak bait. <laughs> Either way, he's not on the water long when he sees another lone fisherman with a big red beard who's mm-hmm. hauling fish. The other fisherman calls himself Grim, which we always know is the mm-hmm. the name someone gives themselves when they're in disguise. Right. And he tells Ingjold to stay with him until his boat is full. But while they're fishing, the weather turns ugly and then uglier. And soon the sky's pitch black and there's a winter gale kicking up. All courtesy of Heta's witchcraft. Witchcraft? Oh, yeah, I didn't mention she's a sorceress, too. A shape-shifting troll sorceress. Sure. And as Ingjald's ship is tossed about on the storm, ice forming on the gunwales, oars cracking under the pressure of the waves, it suddenly occurs to him that maybe... (laughs) That that taking fishing advice from a belligerent witch troll isn't a great idea? (laughs) No, (laughs) Uh, yes, but no. It, it occurs to him that th- this is a job for Barth, the guardian of Snaffles'ness. Now, it's, uh, we've been saying Snaffles'ness. I've been saying Snaffles'ness because that's what I can do. Carry, but, uh, carry on. Uh, it, it suddenly occurs to him that this is a job for Barth, guardian of Snaffles'ness. And the moment he calls on Barth, nothing happens. I, well... Heroing isn't a precise science. Well, maybe he's restricted to the land, possibly, right? No, no, I don't think that's the problem. It just takes a little while. Well, meanwhile, back on land, Heta visits Ingjold's farm to gloat about killing him. Mm -hmm. She shouts a verse in through the window. Out he rode alone in his boat, skin-cloaked Ingjald. Eighteen hooks he lost, skin-cloaked Ingjald. And a forty-yard fishing line, skin-cloaked Ingjald. May he never return again, skin-cloaked Ingjald. (laughs) She's got some uh, effective repetition in this verse. Mm -hmm. Uh, It almost becomes like an incantation. That repeated line, skin-cloaked Ingjald, it really heightens the magical elements of this episode, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. But there's, there's a problem with Hetta's poem... And it isn't the alliteration. No, Hetta's Hetta's counting her dead Icelanders before they're in their burial mounds. Because Ingjold isn't actually dead. Right, no, but he is very, very cold. He's he's only mostly dead. He's just slightly alive. Just on the the precipice. Uh, Mm -hmm. But just as he feels himself slipping away, a man rowing alone in a small rowboat appears out of the darkness. Now, this is obviously Barth who calls out, oh, now this is the first time Barth's going to speak. Oh, you're right. Ooh, what does he sound doing? like? Well, you said Liam Neeson, so get get on that. Oh, no. I got it. <laughs> Not Sean Connery, Liam Neeson. <laughs> oh, I don't think I can handle I, it. I could already tell. I could tell from the way your mouth was shaping. <laughs> you're about to go into a Sean Connery. <laughs> never, never. You're doing poorly, my friend. It's surprising that a bright man like yourself would allow Heta, the troll, to get the better of you. I don't know if that's good or bad. He is Liam Neeson. (laughs) And then he allows Ingjold to get on his ship and tows him into the harbor. 
And when they get back to land, Ingjold is exhausted and needs weeks of recovery, but he does survive. Yeah, does uh, does Hedda have a poetic verse for that? It's unknown, uh, but I'm sure she does. Now, later, Ingjold realizes that Grimm, the mystery fisherman, vanished when Barth arrived, and on that very thin evidence, his family decides that Grimm must have been Thor. Oh, now, blame the Thunder God. Well, I mean, the fisherman did have a red beard, so ipso facto Thor, obviously. Oh, sure, that checks out. Oh, and uh, Barth wanders off while everyone else is tending to Ingjold. He's, that's nice. what he does. Yeah. All right. Well, there are a handful of other stories, but and I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of undercutting our whole montage concept, but they all tend in the same direction. Uh, <laughs> to illustrate, we <laughs> learn funny. about Thor of Oxnakelda, who wrestles an evil trollish spirit called Skincap after he catches her killing his livestock one night. He fights hard all night and ultimately succeeds, breaking the monster's back and killing her. And since he succeeds in a difficult feat, everyone agrees he must have called on Barth, because at this point, everyone is treating Barth as the guardian spirit par excellence for the region. Yes, this section really becomes just a collection of barely coherent stories, Mm -hmm. which is why we're skipping most of them. Uh, wrestling tournaments are mentioned, uh, but don't really impact the story. Um, and there's a man named Lagolf who works for Bar, then plays a trick on a husband who he catches abusing his wife. There's another man, Ald Ornundersen, who spends a winter with Barth, learns mm-hmm. law from him, and marries Barth's daughter Thordis. We even get the news that Barth and his brother Thorkel have reconciled and are occasionally living together in one cave or another. But none of it really adds up to anything significant. It's just one story after another. Loosely linked by Barth, wandering through with his cleft staff, and sometimes meddling in the lives of those who interest him. See, now you sound like you're getting a little frustrated with this saga. Um, you aren't. Yeah. Oh no, no, I'm I'm quietly losing my mind over here. Uh, this is, <laughs> but you know, I do have the experience of writing about saints' lives, uh, and yes. this this does really ring of saints' lives. Right? These yeah. these. Um, borderline illogical stories connected only loosely by a central figure who's only a peripheral character in any of the stories. I mean, I'm basically describing saints' lives there. Uh, Mm -hmm. But trying to make sense of this as a coherent piece of literature, I think, is something of a fool's errand. Well, then, we're just the fools for the job, aren't we? (laughs) I feel like even the montage has given up on making sense of all this. The montage has failed us. Yeah, actually, I, I do want to go into one of those stories for a minute. Okay, go ahead. Uh, so the story about Odd and Underson spending a winter with Barth and marrying Thordis Barth's daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of details in there worth playing with, but to be clear, I agree with you. Ultimately, it doesn't mean very much to the saga as a narrative. Way to sell it. We're, we're, we're great with this saga. <laughs> Keep listening, folks. Oh, my God. No, it, it does include there's gonna a strange... Be some, there's going to be some funny jokes later. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, it does include a strange sequence with Odd having to get Thorkel's skin swaths to guide him to Barth's cavern home. Mm-hmm. And he actually has to break into Thorkel's house. But then Thorkel seems perfectly happy to have him there and guides him to Barth without complaint. But like everything else in this section, the surreal pointlessness of it seems to be the only point, I guess. I don't know. Right, but give me a second. Uh, for one thing, this whole odd passage is clearly one of those narrative tethers we sometimes talk about that are, you know, they're used to fit this saga into extant oral and written saga narratives. Uh, for example, 
we get a completely unnecessary, super-involved list of the wedding guests mm, uh, when yes. Odd and Thordis get married, including several men who are known in other sagas. And there's a conspicuous attempt to link this saga to the last saga we read, Horth's saga. Yes. And that link right. comes through Horth's primary antagonist. You might remember Torvi Valbrinson. I see I you know what? I thought the montage was over, but this is a this is a good like <laughs> thing to deal with. The montage is uh, recovered. Montage recovered. No, yeah. So Torvi's the guy who tried to break up his sister's marriage to Grimkel the Gothi and then tried to kill Horth's baby sister Thorbjorg by exposing her and later was credited with organizing the force that massacred Horde's outlaws on the island or uh, Gersholm. Right, that's him. That's Torvi. Side note, we're going to have a hell of a time with a body count for this saga because the author recounts Torvi's long history of killing people as part of his introduction. Uh, (laughs) And there's always that question of whether deaths count as being part of the saga or not when they're mentioned peripherally like this. But that's a problem for future John and Andy. Yeah, the heck with those guys. Yeah, they're always one step ahead of us, the sneaky bastards. Anyway, in this saga, Torvi's married to Odd's sister, Thorada, uh, which is why he's involved in the wedding. But what's interesting to me is that most of the information we get about Torvi seems to be cribbed from multiple sources, including La Nama book, the settlement mm. book. Now, I'm just speculating, obviously, but that suggests that we've got another of these self-consciously literary sagas on our hands. In other words... An author who thinks of the sagas as a written tradition rather than an oral one. Mm. Well, I mean, we did mention earlier that this author might have written two sagas. Uh, you're not suggesting that this guy wrote Horth's saga, though, are you? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, 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 no. There's, there's been a, a tenuous attempt to link this author to Viglund's saga, which we covered back when we were doing all the warrior poet sagas. I think we'll, we'll talk about that probably in the next episode. Now, my point is that this author, like the Horth saga author, is drawing on a matrix of cultural memory, both written yes. and oral, about the struggle to control and eliminate an outlaw stronghold sometime around the late 10th or early 11th century. But he seems to be thinking like an author writing his way into a canon. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I, I have some thoughts on that, but I want to save them. Um, okay. So I'm going to say, I'm going to say this. Okay. Anything else? <laughs> well, I actually have some thoughts about Barth teaching Odd the law, but we can skip that. Well, we're skipping all kinds of things. Uh, but give me the one-sentence version. I, I want to see if it's what I'm thinking. Uh, okay. Uh, well, <clears throat> it's not going to be one sentence. Uh, on the face of it, this is nonsense. Uh, there's no reason to think that Barth knows the law. Right? We we got a list of the things that he learned when he was in Dovery's cave, and law was not one of them. Um, so not only does he, we have no reason to think he knows the law, but that he's so skilled in it, he can teach Odd to become one of Iceland's finest lawyers which the saga claims he does. Hmm. But if we accept that Barth is a landvater, a, a land spirit, then his connection to law at a primal level makes sense. We've seen that link between law and land, or at least law and what we might call the geocultural identity of Iceland before. Uh, so, for example, in Njal's saga, uh, we saw that uh, Njal says strong law is seen as the bedrock of the Icelandic social experiment. With law shall our land be lifted up, but with lawlessness we will be devastated. So Bar, the land spirit, having an intrinsic feel for just law makes a thematic kind of sense. Hmm. Now, that's an interesting thought. Um, I, I, I'll admit, I, I hadn't considered Barth as a spirit of law, um, especially given how quick he is to anger and throwing nephews off of mountains. But, I, you know, I, I'm not surely... 
I, I'm not sure I'm wholly comfortable with his version of law and justice, but yes, I <laughs> I, I think your theory could have some legs. Um, it's interesting, but I, I think I want to think about that one a little bit. Mm-hmm. You just sprung it on me. Um, but you know uh, what okay. I do. <laughs> All right, uh, we should probably mention that this whole old marrying uh, Thordis thing it it also doesn't come to much of anything uh, i think we hinted at that uh mm-hmm. since thordis dies three years later and there's nothing else about their marriage in the saga or uh those characters right now that's the that's the ending on a whimper i expected this section to peter out on <laughs> there we go excellent excellent onward there's more to do part five a guest at the door I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. Well, the montage was something of a bust, let's be fair. But yeah. the narrative picks up again with a return to the family of Skeggy from Midfjord. Now, John, right. mm-hmm. remind me who, who is Skeggy from Midfjord? Right. <laughs> this is the Skeggy who brought uh, Helga Barth's daughter back to That's Iceland Skeggy. from Greenland. Yes. Right? The sure. one who was keeping yes. her as a concubine for a while. Got you, yes. Uh, possibly not the most admirable of figures in our saga. Right. Uh, Skeggy has a wife named Halbera, who we briefly mentioned before, and they have five children, uh, two sons and three daughters. Mm-hmm. And we get a great deal of information about four of the children's marriages and descendants, but the one we're most interested in here at this point is their third daughter, Thordis. Another Thordis. Oh, yeah. This is one of those sagas. Yeah, I just want to note in passing that we do get a batch of great nicknames in the list of descendants of this family. Uh, We're not going to talk about them all here, but I just want to put them in so that later on when they come up in the judgment section, no one's surprised. Their descendants include Thorberg Cornmouth, Herman the Crooked, (laughs) Alof Shipshield, and Arnor Harrynose. Yes. I I believe the Native Americans called Thorbjorg Maze Mouth. (laughs) I have nothing to say to that. No? Okay. Well, we do learn that this is a very well-connected family. Uh, One daughter's family includes her son-in-law, Ilugi the Black. Ding, 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 ding. Mm -hmm. And his son, Gunlog Serpentong. A ding, 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 ding. Mm -hmm. And their daughter, Hrolthni, is married to Thord Bellower. A ding, a ding, a ding, a ding. Yep. Who we've met in a few sagas already. Yep. I actually actually have him as a thingman, in fact. Yes, you Uh, do. Picked him up in Henthor's saga. Mm, yeah, we're not going to revisit that. Um, uh, the, the point is that their third daughter, Thordis, is positioned for a life of privilege and an important family line. Maybe one day she could even lay down in her bed instead of sitting up, you know? We can all dream. And uh, that's what she's hoping. And when Thordis is 15, her father's house is visited by a giant of a man wearing a gray hood and leaning on a cleft staff. Yeah, this would be Barth. It would be, except that when Thordis' brother Aeth asks the man for his name, the man says that his name is Guest. Okay, so this would be Barth calling himself Guest. Well, yeah, you and I know that. Um, And as we know, uh, calling yourself Guest is something like saying, my name is John Doe. Uh Uh, There are people who really have that name, but people's first reaction is probably going to be skeptical. Right, no, this is a Nautius Maximus situation. Uh, Now, there is a a great moment later in this chapter when the author reveals to us in an aside that Guest stayed with them for the winter, but really, this was Barth Snaffles' ass, as though it were some (laughs) sort of shocking revelation to us. 
Yeah, like no one figured that out yet. This this uh, author is really, really good at his craft. Um, so this guest eventually talks Aeth and Skeggy into having him stay with them for the winter, as you said. And Guest passes the time in part by teaching Aeth about the law. He loves the law. Uh-huh. Um, so, and he does it so much so that Aeth later becomes known as a great lawyer and earns himself the nickname Law aid. So Bard slash guest is just training a generation of lawyers as he wanders around Iceland, like a yeah. like a crappy Johnny Appleseed for barristers, <laughs> Johnny Attorney Seed. <laughs> Except people want more apples. Lawyers. Oh, yeah. oh wow! You know, picking on lawyers is kind of a low hanging fruit, Andy. <laughs> okay, we're clearly getting tired now. <laughs> Let's rush towards the end, please. Yeah, it's uh, it's late on the East Coast, Andy. Uh, Anyway, planting law seeds in the well-manured soil of Aeth's brain doesn't take up all of Guest's time. And as the weeks wear on, it becomes clear that Guest is interested in Skeggy's daughter, Thordis. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, the winter passes quietly, and Guest leaves with everyone's thanks in the spring. And presumably he's off to scatter solicitor colonels across the countryside. (laughs) But as the summer approaches, it becomes clear that... Thordis and Guest got closer than others imagined mm. because Thordis is pregnant. Well, I mean, no one at the farm seems all that shocked by the news, honestly, which is really a little disturbing. Yes. Well, uh, it's what happens when you take a guest in for the winter. Right. Uh, I mean, a guy actually literally named Guest. Yeah, it's uh, probably yeah. not up to something above board. And there's uh, a warning for those of you who are accepting visitors for the winter. Watch right. your daughters. If they say their name is Johnny Fake Name, you might want to <laughs> you want to ask for an ID. That's right. Uh, now we're told that Skeggy is a little cold to his daughter after this, which is honestly pretty gross behavior, but culturally it fits, it especially if he knows or suspects who Guest really was. Yeah, because Barth took Helga away from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And whether Skeggy knows it or not, we can assume that Barth didn't talk his way into Skeggy's home and seduce his daughter by accident or coincidence. No, no. So what we have here at this point in the saga is two men engaging in a proxy feud by sexually exploiting each other's daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, as you said, pretty gross. Yeah. So in the fall... Thordis gives birth to a boy and names him Guest after his father because apparently she didn't get the memo about Nautius Maximus or <laughs> or else she's decided not to acknowledge the truth of what's happened. Yeah. Either way, this does feel like another example of this author paying attention to the consequences of men's behavior toward women. Mm-hmm. But Thordis' life gets slightly more complicated on the next day when a new visitor arrives at the farm. This one's a very tall woman who says that she's there to take the child in as a fosterling. And amazingly, Thordis is fine with this. Hmm. Uh, She agrees to it, and the next day the tall woman disappears with her baby. That's one way to get rid of the problem. Once again, in the tones of someone imparting a deep secret, the author whispers to us that the tall woman was really Helga Barth's daughter, who's back in the saga. But at no point does Helga identify herself to anyone or explain why she has an interest in this baby. Uh, Nope. Not at this point, no. Which is really weird that this lady shows up and says, I'd like your baby. And they're like, here you go. (laughs) Enjoy. Um, But it's not not all that surprising that Thordis jumps at the chance to get the baby out of the house since her father is now treating her like a pariah. Um, Although, again, it's not clear whether he's upset that she got pregnant or that she was consorting with a man he hates. 
But either way, Skeggy is not winning Father of the Year. Uh, no, he's not. Uh, but things turn out all right for Thordis, though. A few years later, a successful farmer named Thorbjorn Grynjotterson comes around and he asks for Thordis's hand in marriage. They end up seemingly happy together and produce two promising sons named Thord and Thorvald, who we'll get to know better later. But years and years go by without any word from the mysterious woman who walked away with Thordis's firstborn son. Now, you're clearly leaning on the folkloric aspect of this, which mm-hmm. I think is fair. Uh, but we also have to look at how strange and strained the relationships of, among this group of people really are. Right. I mean, I was, I was trying to head into a Brothers Grimm moment here, but you go ah, ahead. All right, I will. Um, so Skeki and Helga were together for years, but Skeki ultimately relegated Helga to a subordinate status and married Halbera. Mm-hmm. So Helga was then recaptured by her father, Barth, but rejected his protection and claim to her, and then became a lone wanderer. Yep, so far so good. Okay. Skeggy and Halbera then have five children, the youngest of which is Thordis. Barth then sneaks into their household in disguise and spends the winter seducing Thordis, who he thinks of as the daughter of his daughter's former defiler, Skeggy. Yes. Now, Thordis then gives birth to Barth's son, Guest, but Helga returns from exile to claim the baby as a fosterling. So Mm -hmm. Helga is now foster mother to her younger brother, who is also the grandson of a man she supposedly still loves. Yeah, and who is the product of a proxy revenge between her father and the father of the baby's mother. Good lord. Yeah, this saga is something else. This really is a bad soap opera. Yep. Uh, And on that observation, we've reached the end of the first part of Barth Saga. Mercifully, yes. Uh, (laughs) Or possibly the end of Barth Saga. It depends on how you look at it. (laughs) Unless you mean that we're just giving up on this one. Uh, That was the most confusing way you could possibly have said that. So you'll need to explain. Well, there's a pretty widespread debate among readers of this saga. The few that there are. As to whether it's actually two related stories stitched into a single saga. And this part, the part we've talked about in this episode, it centers on the story of Barth Domson. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second part, which it's been argued is the work of a later writer, it picks up the story of Barth's son, Guest, who we've just met. Right. It's not necessarily that clear cut, though. There are story elements that remain consistent throughout. And we'll still be getting cameos from Barr than from others from the first part in the second part, in the next section. Mm-hmm. But on the other other hand, there are some thematic differences between the two halves. And tonally, the saga takes on a slightly different style in the second half. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to see, a, you know, we've seen many papers, read many papers about the linguistic analyses of trying to figure out mm-hmm. uh, who wrote what and trying to match up texts with single authors. Um, that stuff's really fascinating. It would be cool to see if you split this saga in two and see um, if uh, linguistically they match up grammatically and all that stuff. Um, yeah. That would be kind of cool. But anyway, so it, it's not a separate piece of writing entirely, but it may not be part of the original story is what we're getting right. at. And if the second writer is drawing on the first part of the story while he writes the second, linking elements and characters, that's not terribly surprising that that sure. would happen. So are you uh, are you already declaring your stance here? Oh, no. We need to tease our listeners. This is the thing that they're going to be really on the edge of their seats for. This oh, is the undoubtedly. next time on Saga thing. We might reveal the, if we the think Reddit, that this crappy the Reddit, saga uh, is. Will, the Reddit will be a buzz. Yes. <laughs> right. So, yeah, we're going to save that discussion for next episode. Okay. 
Uh, well, before we shut things down, uh, I want to talk for a minute about something else that links the two parts of this saga together. Oh, no. Uh, no, no, no. For my money, the most interesting thing we've seen so far in this saga is the author's conceptualization of trolls and giant kid. Okay, I can get on the board with this. Uh, first of all, they're everywhere. Right? Uh, Thorkel, Barth, Barth's parents, Mjol and Dum, Barth's first wife, Flaumgrith, and so on. So many of the major figures in this saga are embodiments of this continuum between human and parahuman figures. Now, this is an argument we've presented before on the podcast, uh, and it's not original to us. I think I've mentioned it before, but if you're interested in the mental landscape of the saga authors and their idea of trollness, you really should read Armin Jakobsen's book, The Troll Inside You. Uh, and there are a few other resources we can put up on the WordPress site as well. Yes. Uh, yeah, we can we can probably do that. Um, yeah. If you tell me what those resources are, we can definitely do it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get right on that then. Uh, so my point is that this continuum with human on one end and the monstrous figure on the other, it isn't really about degrees of humanity. It's about qualities of humanity. What we're seeing is a way of thinking about the experience of the human as encapsulating much more than the usual default, quote unquote, normal human. The entire binary or continuum, however you want to articulate it, all of that is contained within human possibility, right? Man and monster are all man. Stephen Asma's On Monsters makes this argument pretty effectively. Monstrosity is a way of registering transgression. Uh, for Asma, it's mostly moral transgressions. As he puts it, monster is a term we use for people who cannot be negotiated with. Mm. Right. Uh, like... For those of you who have read Beowulf in school, uh, this is exactly how the Beowulf poet explains Grendel. Exactly. Grendel is a monster because he can't be reasoned with, and he won't enter into legal resolution with his enemies over the people that he kills. Yes. So in other words, a being whose thoughts or behaviors or motives or morals are unknowable to us, right? Or are, un are unreconcilable or irreconcilable with our own. Uh, mm -hmm. Since our regular toolbox of inference for the workings of a person's mind don't work on these people, they are alien to us, right? estranged. But since what we recognize as transgressive isn't necessarily consistent from one time or place to another, our monsters aren't consistent either. Each culture, each generation within a culture, creates its monsters to contain its transgressive positions. Yeah, which would mean that monsters aren't alien to humanity, they're generated from humanity. Yeah, and I think generated from is the right way to frame it. The monsters of each people or place proceed from the social and moral limitations imposed by that people on themselves. Monsters spring from the place where our assumptions about others meet the reality of the unknowability of others. Mm. Yeah, that's a pretty theory. But it's addressing <laughs> a more – I like it. I genuinely like it. But it's addressing a more psychological idea about monstrosity. Mm -hmm. uh, Svall and Thufa have a psychological estrangement from quote-unquote normal people. Uh, but there's also a physical component implied in their going troll, as they mm -hmm. said. Um, and someone like Thorkel Skinswathed is well within the boundaries of normalcy in his behavior. Yeah. It's his physical self that the author thinks is worthy of comment. Right now, skin swathed is normal when he's introduced, but by the time he's leading Odd and Underson into a blizzard and abandoning him there, he's pretty clearly in the vicinity of troll behavior. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't think we can separate the psychological and the physiological elements of trolls. 
uh, we don't have to look super carefully at human history to see that when we find when we find someone else threatening or enigmatic, we tend to demonize them mm-hmm. right? through stereotypes or through caricatures, through exaggeration of difference. Right? This saga is working in that palette of ideas, but without the judgment. I don't I don't know if it's always especially successful, but that's a different issue. Yeah. So so essentially, what we have here is a. A concomitant of the Frankenstein problem, right? Hmm. The the monster is an articulate and feeling human creature, but it's a physical monstrosity. And the way it's treated by its creator leads to a psychological estrangement from others. Sure. Yeah, no, I I think that rides, right? Uh, Frankenstein's monster is rejected by its creator and by human feeling. And it turns into a, it, it turns itself then toward a rejection of moral feeling and a rejection of self-regard as a kind of internalization of that rejection. Mm-hmm. And this this gets us into a whole different area of disability theory, the differentiation of impairment and disability. But I, I don't want to veer too far away from what we're talking about right now. To pursue your Frankenstein analogy, we can also look from a different perspective, right? Uh, Victor Frankenstein is an estranged figure as well. He's rejected and marginalized and ultimately hunted by his own creation. Uh, And the tension in that book is partly about whether the monster is actually less monstrous than his creator. Absolutely, yeah. uh, Which Shelley goes out of her way never to fully resolve. So is is the monster more monstrous than the man who creates him? Uh, And in this case, we create monsters by estranging other people from ourselves. Uh, I think the saga does have this in common with that. We're never really allowed to get comfortable with who or what someone like Barth is, and that kind of suspends our ability to judge his monstrosity. Yeah, and most people, just as part of the human condition, most people are fascinated by the idea of the monstrous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Natalie Lawrence, for example, and others have pointed out that it's a human desire to confront the monstrous, and and that that leads to hoaxes like the the Fiji mermaid or the Springheel Jack. Springheels Jack is real, Andy. <laughs> right. <laughs> and and that same interest really drives entire genres of film, not just horror, but sci-fi and kaiju films and so on. And everything we're talking about, I think, presupposes that these figures, these trolls, are monsters, right, in the sense mm-hmm. that the term's usually used. And it might not be that simple. Uh, first, trolls are complicated figures when it comes to monstrosity. Yeah. Second... Barth, at least, isn't just a man with giant and troll blood. He also takes on the aspect of a Landwater, a land spirit. Yes, and Philip Pulciano calls him a, a Bjargvetter, a, a guardian spirit. But they're not really that far apart. Right. Landwater are uh, what they are as a matter of debate, but they are guardian spirits of the land, as you're saying. Yeah, and some people read them as nature spirits, others as ancestral ghosts or the spirits of the dead of the land. Yeah, they they exist as sort of an overlapping category with giants or elves in the mythological landscape. Uh, Landvatr, as the name suggests, oversee a piece of land, right? And that piece can be an entire island or it can be a single hill or boulder. They protect their chunk of land from threats, but they also reward good husbandry and can encourage the land to be fertile. And we've seen them in other sagas. Uh, for example, when Scott the Grimson erected a shame pole against Queen Gunild and Eric Bloodaxe, he set it to shame the Landvater uh, for allowing Gunild mm-hmm. and Eric to rule so poorly. Yes, yes. Uh, 
And in the later Middle Ages, there are folk tales told of priests and bishops driving the Landvater out of the land. Uh, so they're seen as powerful guardian spirits, but spirits that oppose the coming of Christianity, or at least being incompatible with it. Uh, and that's something that we're going to see coming into the saga a bit more clearly in the second half. Yes. And speaking of which, that's a good segue for drawing this first half of Bard's saga to a close. Um, but what if we did just one quick question from the rune sack? A quickie. Uh, okay. Let's find a quick one, though. It really is late, and I'm back on school night time. Yes. Uh, all right. Um, so here's here's a tiny one written on a – it's just on a scrap of confetti from Facebook. Have you, have you been going to parties without me? Not this year, John. No parties this year. But uh, I do have something even better. It's a question from a listener. Excellent. All right. This one is from Greg Rice. And Greg asks, in what order should one read the sagas? Oof. Okay. Uh, <laughs> That's not the reaction we need. Oof. Hi, Greg. Uh, this is not a simple one, Andy. You said quick, not simple. I cannot argue with that logic. Uh, well, the quickest answer is, Read them in the exact order we're covering them on the podcast. That's a good uh, answer. Although that's not so much a scientific method as it is Andy and I getting to the end of a saga and saying, what's next at each other in a series of text messages. Still, it's a list and there is occasionally a logic mm -hmm. to it. We go through little sequences that make sure, sense to us. Sure. You know? So, uh, But if you're following that method, you'd obviously start with Ravenkill and then just barrel right on through until you're... Brain shuts down and you start randomly assigning unflattering nicknames to all your friends. Or you could follow the order in which they were published in the Complete Sagas of Icelanders, the five-volume series that we're using for most of the translations we're working from the podcast. That's a somewhat arbitrary setup, but it does have the advantage of being already laid out for you in order and almost thematically. So you mm. could just keep reading from one saga to the next, but of course... You would have to buy that uh, very expensive <laughs> collection. Um, um, so maybe that's not feasible. Although for some of these uh, sagas, Andy, I don't know where else they'd find a translation if they aren't reading it from this series. Yeah, that's true. Um, if, you, if you're looking to read all of the sagas, you kind of have to get that Complete mm -hmm. Sagas of Icelanders um, because some of them simply aren't available in English otherwise. So if you can't afford the Complete Sagas of Icelanders, then I recommend maybe you grab the, the Penguin edition, the Sagas of Icelanders, which has a series of sagas in a decent order. Um, I think it starts with Hrafnkel's saga and moves kind of uh, through a bunch of good ones. And it's right. affordable and an easy mm -hmm. introduction to the sagas. But yeah. Well, and as long as we're throwing out publication or, uh, order, we could suggest the Fornrit series publication order, uh, which uh, the Islensk Fornrit series is the publication of record for scholarly editions of the sagas. The editions of the Corpus of Icelandic Medieval Literature have been slowly published through the Fornrit series over the course of, at this point, nearly a century. Uh, again, arbitrary, but it has a claim to authority. And there is a sort of organization of some of the volumes into regional sagas, so you'd be more likely to run into overlapping stories sort of in sequence that way. And since scholarship tends to follow the availability of texts, the foreign reads are also a nice rough guide to when you'd start to see articles and books making more use of each saga. Yes, yes. And none of these are definitive, though. Um, and really, right. if we're talking about what order to read them in, well, honestly... Your own preferences are the only guide that you should or need to follow. Right. Now, that's about the most non-advice advice we can give, but it's it's also probably the most truthful. Um, yeah. 
But if you're interested in a getting started saga, if you sort of are just looking for a recommendation of like, which one do you read first? I'd probably go with Gizla Saga as a great starter saga. Uh, Gizla Saga Sursen. Uh, how about you, Andy? I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I think mm-hmm. uh, Gizla Saga is a great one. Um, they're not too, one of the things that's nice about it is they're not too many names to keep track of, even though there are exactly. a, a fair amount. Um, and there's some great action and some mm-hmm. great, uh, uh, great themes at play in that one. So it, mm-hmm. it's one of the, the best of the small sagas that you can use to introduce yourself to the genre. And despite the limited cast, it's got sort of everything that a saga should have, right? It's It's got sprawling action, it's got intrigue, it's got people choosing up sides, it's got uh, cycles of revenge. Um, it's It has everything that you want packed into a saga. But then, as you say, it's relatively easy to keep track of. It never really loses focus. Everything that happens in that saga feels necessary to the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and it's got good literary construction and depth, and that's mm-hmm. uh, something to appreciate about it. So I would say I agree. Gisla Saga is a great introduction to the saga genre. Once you get through that, um, then you can start building on um, your experience and knowledge of how sagas are written um, and get used to it. But what direction you choose to go is entirely up to you. Yep. Um, yeah. So, all right, that's going to do it for this time. As always, thanks for coming along on these ridiculous and uh, nonsensical journeys. Um, thank you for listening to our foolishness. We'd love to return the favor. <laughs> yeah, uh, let us know what you think of this saga so far. Um, whether you're reading it for a class or just reading along with us or whether you think print is dead and are just trying to make sense of this Michigas along with us. <laughs> Did we get anything wrong? For that matter, did we get anything right? Uh, yes, and you can reach out to us at sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, on Twitter at sagathingpod, or on Facebook where we are sagathingpodcast. We're also on Instagram at sagathingpodcast, or you can reach us at our email address, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can toss a note into any random glacial cave in Iceland. Apparently there's a better than average chance of a troll person living inside. And maybe you'll find one with a clear sense of duty to postal delivery. You never know your luck. All right. We'll be back in a few weeks with the second half of Barth Saga. Or is it Guest Saga? (laughs) Wait and find out. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now. Is he even the protagonist, John? Uh, well, nevertheless. So, Barth <laughs> nice and his dodge. brother Thor... Oh, boy. Uh, hang on a second. The dog is chewing on the... Uh-oh.